This is The Resilient Life, where we believe that every human will struggle in this life. Our challenge is to struggle well. I'm Ryan Mannion. I lost my brother to war, my mom to cancer, and I'm the daughter of a retired Marine. I'm also a wife, mom, author, and president of one of the nation's leading veteran service organizations. Join me and some incredible guests as we explore the value of struggling well through life's inevitable challenges. Welcome to another episode of the Resilient Life Podcast. Excited to have my friend today, Leif Babin, former Navy SEAL, co-founder of Echelon Front and co-author of Extreme Ownership and the Dichotomy of Leadership, and most importantly, uh, a recipient of the If Not Me, Then Who Award from the Travis Mannion Foundation. Uh, Leif, welcome to The Resilient Life. Ryan, great to be on with you. Uh, I'm sorry, uh, we, ha- we haven't done it sooner, but it's, uh, it's awesome to be on, and uh, it's, a, it's a great podcast. You guys have a, an awesome message. And I proudly have my If Not Me, Then Who uh, trophy uh, uh, that, that thing is like, you could, you could club someone to death with it if, uh, if you needed to protect yourself, but it's, uh, it's certainly, certainly something that, uh, though I feel very undeserving of it, it's, it's, uh, it's a great thing. And, uh, I'm proud to have it on my shelf, uh, in the office next door. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I think important context, uh, uh, your wife was when I had Jenna on. So life is married to Jenna Lee, who, uh, founded smarter news uh, the only place you should be getting your news from, the most unbiased, get it straight, get the facts, uh, news source. Um, but Jenna was my first female guest on the podcast. And I remember as we were kicking this off and we were putting together like the list of people we wanted to kick the podcast off with, I was like, Jenna, we must have Jenna on. And, you know, the two of you are such an incredible couple. And the way that that we came to... Uh, uh, form of friendship was I was on Jenna was on uh, a Fox News uh, commentator and I was on her show. Um, she was sharing the story of Travis and the Travis Manning Foundation. And I brought up that, you know, one of the things we do is the Marine Corps Marathon and we've got a big group. And um, and after the show, she's like, ah, I'd like to learn more about that. And uh, a few months later, we were in D.C. together getting ready to run the Marine Corps Marathon. and. Gosh, I'm thinking back, that was probably like 2010, 2011-ish. I mean, it was very early on. I believe that was 2012. Oh, 2012. It was, it was okay. 2012, yeah, because I, I got out of the Navy in 2011. We got married in 2011. I left the Navy, uh, left active duty. I was in the reserves for a little while, but uh, ne- never really did anything with that. But uh, yeah, we, and we, I, I, I tore my ACL uh, like two months after I was out of the Navy, which was, so there was a big recovery from that. And, and, uh, I had just run a Ironman, which was like my first ever Ironman. And I was just, my body was just destroyed from that thing. Uh, and then I ran, Jenna was very annoyed with me, uh, that I was, uh, I was not keeping up the pace. I think the longest run I did in prep for the, for the Marine Corps marathon with you guys was 12 miles or something like that. So, uh, I just got, it was just a gut check for the, you know, for the, <laughs> Well, the I last think, half of it there. Yeah, that was the 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 year before in 2011. My husband did one of those where he he signed up for the marathon and then didn't train. And it's weeks before the marathon. And I'm like, you know, you took a spot from someone. I can't believe you. And he did one of those. Well, I'm still running. I'm like, you haven't run more than three miles. And he went out and ran the 26 miles. He couldn't walk for days after. But just despite <laughs> me, he's like, I'm running that marathon. That's and I think awesome. a lot of people show up to that Marine Corps marathon, not, I'm not saying they don't train, but there's so much energy at that event. Um, I always say, if you're going to run a marathon, if you're a, a beginner, if you're new to marathon running, that's the run you want to do because the crowd and the people you're running alongside with, they keep you going. They, they are 100% the momentum that get you across that finish line. It's it's an awesome marathon to run. Uh, yeah, I definitely don't recommend for any anybody training for marathons. You you should absolutely train for that because it's <laughs> it's punishing if you don't. We we had a saying in the SEAL teams: if you're going to be stupid, you better be strong. And uh, and I think that sounds like uh, mine and and Dave's uh, training plans. There, uh, it, it definitely you're it, it's a real gut check. But what what's awesome about that marathon is you know just the team. And when you when we were running it, you know as, as team Travis and Brendan, and it was just awesome to 
you know, awesome to, to honor those guys and, and such a great team of people that you guys put together. And, and uh, it was just, yeah, it, it's a special thing. I think to run around and see the monuments and finish right there at the, you know, the, the Marine Corps Memorial, uh, you know, just the, just an awesome, uh, awesome thing. Yeah. So that was 2012 and you guys have been, both you and Jenna have been so connected with our organization ever since and been such incredible supporters of the work that we're doing and have helped, helped us out in so many ways. And, um, you know, I, I shared all your incredible accolades, but, uh, uh, we gave you, uh, our award each year, we give out an award to, um, a veteran who demonstrates, uh, what it means to live a life of service, both in and out of uniform. And there has only been, uh, this will be our 10th year. So only been nine recipients to date of, of this award that we give out each and every year. It's, um, you know, we take nominations and then our board ultimately, uh, uh, picks uh, the award recipient every year. But, you know, when I think about the, the people that um, we've given this award to, our first recipient was Brian Stan, who, was, uh, who served with my brother in the Marine Corps and uh, went out, uh, became a UFC fighter, but also was champion for, you know, veterans causes that whole time. And, you know, what you have gone on to do and, and the award you say undeserving, but so deserving because, you left military service, but you took all those principles and you first put them into a book. Uh, you wrote the book with, uh, with your friend and, and fellow SEAL teammate, Jocko. Um, and then you started a company on what it means to live by this idea of extreme ownership and what leadership means. And my husband actually attended, I think your first muster that Echelon Front ever put on. You said, hey, why don't you send Dave up and he went up to New York City and he's sending me pictures of him, you know, working out at 4.45 in the morning with you and Jocko and a bunch of other uh, individuals. And, and he came back and he was like, that was incredible. Like, this is going to be something. And I fast forward to where you guys are today. I see, you know, you'll post for your, your musters. And then two days later, you're like, muster sold out. This is the next one. So you guys have really been able to do something here that's so incredible for how you take these like leadership principles and put them into uh, in the civilian world in a lot of ways, because a lot of what we talk about at the Travis Manning Foundation, when we talk about character and leadership, like those are things that are not part of uh, any sort of curriculum as you're going through, as you're growing up, as you're, as you're getting educated. And um, I think finding offsets, like what you guys are doing at Echelon Front is so incredibly important. And um, again, shows your dedication to service uh, outside of uniform as well. Well, I, I definitely appreciate that, Ryan. I, again, it's a great honor to have that, you know, that, that award, you know, from you guys. And, and um, I, I, again, I, I felt it was, there's so many other people that are, that are, that are far more deserving, you know, in my eyes, but I, I think one thing that I have learned uh, since I've uh, left active duty, you know, I don't, I served 13 years, um, not, not including my, you know, four years at the Naval Academy. And, and it was, I mean, that was an extraordinary part of my life. I wouldn't trade that for anything. And, but, but it was, I realized there's a lot of ways to serve. There's a lot of ways to serve. And, and it's something that, that you and your whole team do, uh, you know, at the Travis Manning foundation. I mean, it, it's just, you've inspired a whole generation of people to, to go out there and serve their communities and, and, and pass on lessons from the battlefield and honor those that, that sacrificed and, and, you know, and, and, you know, the community outreach to take care of families and the nine 11 heroes runs, all those things. It's just a, it's an extraordinary thing uh, to be a part of. And I think that's one thing we've tried to do is just, is honor those, those guys like Mark Lee and, and Mike Monsoor and, and Ryan Job that, that we lost from tasking a bruiser um, in, in combat uh, but, but to, to really pass on the lessons that we learned from the battlefield as well. And it's been, it's been awesome to see. It was really fun to have Dave at the, at the muster there in New York. Um, and, and he, back then we were, I think that was our second ever muster. There was like 450 people there, which was like a giant number. And, you know, we're, it's, it's like double that now, um, you know, when, when, when people come to these things, but it's, it, they're people from all walks of life, you know, multiple countries around the world, um, but really almost every state is represented just about every industry. I mean, including, you know, the nonprofit sector and education and, and first responders, uh, you know, military. So there's, 
it's just a really cool group of people that are looking to 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 really take a hard look in the mirror at themselves and, and think how can they get better how can they improve you know and and the, the awesome thing about what we do at Ashland Front is when we get to pass on some lessons learned some leadership lessons from the battlefield it's it helps people get better. They become better leaders. They become better humans in every capacity. And it makes every everyone around them better as well. So it's been a pretty rewarding thing to see. Um, we get to work for, with some pretty extraordinary people. And I love the idea, you know, lessons from the battlefield, because, you know, a lot of what we talk about at, at the Travis Manning Foundation and similarly at Echelon Front is like all these principles that are learned in the military, right? Um, the 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 average citizen who doesn't serve, they, they don't get access to them. And you guys have been able to build this business around, like, we're going to teach you these lessons from the battlefield. And, and, you know, a lot of it is based off of leadership. And, you know, I follow Echelon Front. I see all the messages you guys are putting out. And, and one of the things that I have found when you start, like, digging into leadership and digging into those principles is, like, it's a little bit intimidating, like that idea of leadership, that idea of being a leader. And I love how you guys kind of break that down to let everyone know that they, in no matter what position, no matter what they're doing professionally, they all have opportunities to be leaders, like where they are, right? It's not about like trying to achieve, this is what you can do to become a leader. Like wherever you are in your life, you can be a leader. And I love the way you guys articulate that in a lot of your lessons. Well, I appreciate that. It's definitely, it's something that a lot of people don't think about, right? It's definitely people, when you say, hey, I teach leadership or, hey, we pass on leadership lessons learned or, hey, I'm speaking to a group of leaders. A lot of people think about that as like, oh, that must be the CEOs of a bunch of companies or that must be the, you know, in the military, it would be the senior commanders, um, you know, of, of, of a unit. But that's not at all what we're talking about. When we say leadership, we're talking about every level of the team, you know, to, to the, the squad leader, you know, in charge of eight people, to the fire team leader in charge of four people, to the, the frontline trooper, not in charge of anybody else, but just themselves and, and their piece of the mission. And, and everybody's a leader. It, Jocko actually defined this. Uh, it's the first time I'd heard him do this a, a couple of years ago. But he he basically was someone was was pushing back on this idea. Well, I'm not really a leader, you know. I, I don't know how this can really apply to me. And, and something he said really resonated with me. It was look, if you interact with other human beings in any capacity, then then you're a leader. You you can take you've got to influence people. You know, you've got to get people aligned. You've got to actually work together and depend on other folks uh, to to accomplish whatever mission you're trying to accomplish in life. And that applies in your family, you know, in your, in, in your community um, and certainly in, in your business, but, but really all aspects of life. And I think these leadership principles, they apply everywhere. And whether you're a, a teenager or whether you're, uh, you know, in, in a, a frontline trooper out there, you know, somebody who's, who's uh, making things happen, not charging anybody else, but, but your, yourself, or whether you're actually a manager or you're some kind of a, a senior executive, uh, every, all, they apply across the spectrum uh, in, in, in all capacities. And I think as people realize that, they, they start to understand, hey, there's, okay, I need to understand, you know, they, they take and implement this stuff and, and all of a sudden it creates opportunities for them as they become more successful. The other thing that people push back on, Ryan, is that people don't see leadership as a skill. They don't see it as a skill. People kind of think about it as like, well, you're either kind of born with it or you, you're not born with it, or you just stumble upon it through experience. You know, and, and one of the things that we try to do in the military was, you, you know, the worst case scenario is you you don't want to let people go onto the battlefield and learn the hard way, right? I mean, there's there's too much at stake for that. So, so you want to, you want to prepare people as best you can for situations before they're in those situations. So, uh, so that you can actually save lives and mitigate risk and, and, and not have to learn through, you know, catastrophic consequences. So um, that's, but you can absolutely train leadership. It's, it's a skill, just like any skill, like, like playing a musical instrument, like, like, uh, um, you know, playing a sport. It's, it's not something that we're born with. And so when you start to learn that, Hey, there's, there's a, this is a skill set. I can, I can educate myself and, and train myself. And now I actually have some skills that I can actually apply. Uh, and uh, the awesome thing is when you see people implement those skills at whatever level of, of the team they, they may be, it's, it's, it's pretty awesome. Uh, it's pretty awesome to see because it has massive impact. Yeah. And I think, you know, you touch on something like sometimes you think people, people think, well, you're born with leader, you know, you're born a leader. Um, and I think oftentimes when you look at leaders, like when, when you look at, when I watch you, when I watch Jocko out there speaking, 
guys are very dynamic, right? You're, you're very confident. You're very dynamic in the way you speak and the way you put it out there. But like, and I think people probably think, well, that's I've, how they were. I've always been accused of being a, a, just a quiet, soft-spoken introvert, right? <laughs> yeah. But if, if, and, and you are quiet, you are quiet and you are soft-spoken, but if you're looking at when you're up there on the stage, like you command presence, right? But that's probably not something you were born with. That's something you were taught. That's something you trained at. Yeah, I'm definitely, uh, I'm, I'm being very facetious there. I've certainly never been uh, accused of being the quiet, soft-spoken <laughs> person, but, but there's, uh, if anything, maybe I've just been on my best behavior around you at, at, uh, uh, in, in certain settings, but there, there is, you're absolutely right. I mean, people just like in the, if, you know, if the, the NBA basketball player, you know, or the, or the NFL football player, they're born with certain attributes, you know, that that's going to, that it's going to give them an advantage, their height or their size or their, you know, their strength or their speed. But, but even still like that, there's, if, if they're not actually working on those things and developing their, their skill set over time, even with just some natural uh, innate ability that that doesn't really matter. And, and, you know, what's fascinating about it um, is I, I put something like 134 officers, I believe it was, uh, through training uh, over the course of two years. So when we came back from the Battle of Ramadi in 2006, I took over, um, this is probably about the, about the time that Travis was deployed to, um, to, to Fallujah. I took over a leadership course we called the Junior Officer Training Course. And what that was, was every single SEAL officer that graduated from our training pipeline went through that training. And, and Brendan Looney was one of those officers that I, I put through training, was an absolute standout uh, and, and just, a, just an awesome human being. Um, and... It, it was, uh, and that's really how I first got to learn about Travis's story was through, through Brendan. Um, and, and it was, uh, as, as he was going through training and, and, and talking about, you know, Travis and the impact that, that he had uh, on, on Brendan, but there's, there is a, uh, go seeing all those officers going through training. There were, there were people who were just nervous to stand up in front of a group. I mean, couldn't even put out like, Hey, I, you, we need you to present on this particular topic. And I mean, they just fall apart. Um, people who just, so there was plenty of people, uh, is the, these young officers and all these guys are, you know, they're good athletes. They're tough. They just graduated from buds, you know, our seven month long, uh, you know, basic under our demolition seal, uh, uh, program, which is the basic, uh, training pipeline for the seal teams, you know, it's a 70, 80% attrition rate. So, so it takes a lot to make it to that training, uh, right off the bat. And yet, they're terrified to stand in front of a group and like present on a, on a topic or they're, they're, they're having a hard time making a decision under pressure when you're applying some pressure to them in a training situation. And, and they had to learn how to do that. They, and so that's, you know, through training, they're able to get better and better and better. And some of the, the, those officers that started with almost none of the innate qualities of charisma or outspokenness or some of the things that you're talking about, um, actually learned and got better and better and better and went on to have very successful careers as a result. There were people who maybe had some innate qualities of, you know, that, that were outspoken, that were charismatic, that the things that you might think would give them an advantage who weren't willing to listen, weren't willing to learn, never improved. And as a result failed as officers eventually got fired and maybe even got booted out of the SEAL team. So um, the only people that can't actually improve uh, their leadership skills are the people that are just not humble enough to to take on constructive criticism, to actually take ownership of problems when they actually happen. And so they never improve, they never get better. Uh, and eventually those people fail, but everybody else, everybody else can get better. And it's a skill set you can absolutely learn. Uh, you know, I, I think back a lot. Um, I do a lot of public speaking and, and oftentimes people are like, well, I mean, clearly you're just a naturally gifted public speaker. And, you know, I do the, oh, thanks. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, you know, I love being in front of a room. And I think back to 2010 was the first time that I spoke publicly about Travis and it was at his high school. And his high school had asked me to come in and speak to the entire student body about Travis, about, you know, just share, the, share his story. They were like, we want every, every young man, he went to an all boys Catholic school outside of Philadelphia, we want every young man in this school to know Travis's story. And I'm like, I was, I was excited at the opportunity. And then I was terrified at the opportunity. And they said, you have 30 minutes. And I'm like, oh my gosh, you know, what am I going to do in 30 minutes? And I wrote a speech and I wrote this speech word for word. 
I memorized every single word. I read it over 200 times. I remember standing in front, reading it to my dad. And I went in and I gave that speech and I could not have deviated from one word uh, from that speech or I would have messed up, you know, my whole memorization. And I remember getting done and feeling like exhilarated at the fact that I had done it, that I, I felt, you know, and I'd love, I wish there was a recording of it because in my mind, I was like, I knocked it out of the park. Who knows how I sounded, right? But I remember that preparation going into it. And, you know, and I think where I have come today, where like the idea of just giving a speech and having words in front of me, it's, it's very unnatural to me now. I, I'm much more of a storyteller. I like to get up and, you know, share my own words, but that comes with a lot of practice of feeling confident to get up on that stage and not be, you know, not have the crutch of a paper in front of you. Um, but again, like a lot of people don't understand the preparation and the hard work and the time and effort it puts in to hone on a, a skill. And, um, I think back to that and, and just how unsure I was of myself at that time. Um, and I very easily could have punted that to my dad and been like, dad, you got this one. But I was like, no, I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. And I'm so glad that I did. Well, you're, you're a fantastic speaker, Ryan, you know, and I've seen you speak a number of times now. And, and it's, you know, once what's, what's amazing is, you know, at, you know, at the, at the, if not me, then who, uh, Gala for the Travis Manning Foundation. That's probably the, one of the most intimidating audiences in the world. I mean, it you've is. got the <laughs> commandant of the Marine Corps and the, you know, I mean, secretaries of defense and, and, uh, uh, you know, Medal of Honor recipients and, and, you know, major CEOs of, uh, of, of corporations and, and, and some very successful people in the room. So definitely you get up there and just knock that out of the park. And, you know, it's, it's, it's like, it's old hat to you, but I think for people that are watching, right. It seems, oh, well, Ryan, just, Ryan's just great at that. And I think that's that's what happens from a leadership perspective. Like, oh, that person's just good or they're bad. Instead of, you know, it, it's I I picked up surfing when I moved out to San Diego. I graduated Naval Academy in 98 and went to, uh, I, I was stationed on a ship before I went to the SEAL teams and I was stationed in San Diego and and uh, I picked up surfing. You know, it, in 1999, I moved to San Diego. This is a great time. I, wa I wanted to learn how to surf. So I bought a surfboard, bought a wetsuit. And it's kind of like watching when you watch like Kelly Slater, you know, who's the best surfer in the world. And you watch him dropping in on pipeline when it's like triple overhead, just, and, and it looks easy. He makes it look easy, you yeah. know? So you just assume like, oh, well, he's just great at that. He was just born that way. Instead of, you know, he, he, you don't see the, you know, the, the hundreds of thousands of reps that, that it, it takes uh, you know, to, to, to be able to do that and do it safely without getting smashed or without getting, you know, drowned. So it, it's, uh, I think it's the same way uh, it, when you're talking about public speaking, when you're talking about leadership and, and there are people that make it look easy, but it, it doesn't come easy to anyone. You actually have to learn, you have to grow. I think about when we started Echelon Front, you know, 10 years ago, um, I was very note heavy and I'd rehearse these things in front of Jenna and, and, and I would, I was, I had the notes, basically just a script in the, in the note sections of a PowerPoint presentation. And, and, you know, it took a good couple of years, I think before we don't use any of that now, I mean, at all. And, and it's, it's just, we tell stories, we, we, we speak from that, we understand what we're going to say. I mean, it's always great to have an outline, uh, but it's all the rehearsal and preparation um, that, that, that goes into it. And I think that's it, any skill is like that. And it's so easy for any of us to, to look at others and say, well, it's easy for them. I think that's the biggest excuse that, that any of us give ourselves is, is that it's harder for other people than it is for me. Yeah. And, and, and it's, it's really just an excuse that you're giving yourself when you think, oh, well, Ryan's just a natural gifted speaker. And I'm really nervous to do that. It's like, well, she was probably pretty nervous to do that too. The first few times that she, she did it. And, uh, and yet she's, she's worked through that. So it, it takes hard work and preparation and discipline uh, is, is going to get you through. And, and I think that's what, how you're going to improve in anything that you're trying to do in life. Yeah. So when you talk about leadership, you talk about leaders. One of the, I, I, I asked Jocko this question when I had him on the podcast. Um, you know, there's this idea of like, there's good leaders and there's bad leaders, right? So when you look at, and when, when I talk about bad leaders, people in a position of, of power, right? And we got into a little bit, like all the things you can learn from a good leader, but almost more importantly, the things you can learn from a bad leader. And, you know, the, some of these ideas that like, you can learn so much how to be a leader by being led by a bad leader. And you guys talk about that a lot at Echelon Front, like how to navigate 
bad leadership, right? And how you can be a leader inside maybe some like a toxic environment or being led by a bad leader. Have you ever dealt with that personally? Or, you know, do you have any insight for people that may be in a position where they, they, they are under bad leadership and, you know, trying to figure out how they can stake their leadership claim, you know, within that organization? There, there's a ton that you can learn from bad leadership. I, I would say, you know, a lot of what I learned at the Naval Academy was, was, you know, so whether it was a, was a midship and it was trying to lord it over me or, you know, so just, just somebody who just, you know, a, a, a lieutenant, you know, who just wasn't going to give us the time of day and kind of treat us like dirt because we were midshipmen type thing. I, I just, it, it, those things always stuck with me of like, okay, I never want to be like that. That's something that I, I don't want to be. It, 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 so it, I think it's great to kind of set the left and right limits of, of, of who you want to be, you know, in the direction that you want to go. Um, you know, we, we do, we often do kind of role play scenarios with people to show them like, Hey, okay. You want to, you want to push back against your boss right now. Right. So if we're talking about a bad leadership scenario. How are you dealing with someone who's, you know, a toxic leader or someone you met, you don't like someone you don't have a good relationship with. Uh, and the reality is that that good leaders are really rare. They they really are. I mean, I, I think about um, you know my time in the in the in the, in the thirteen years in the Navy and nine years in the SEAL teams. I had I had one commanding officer out of that entire time out of probably twelve different commanding officers who was was amazing, like like an incredible leader. One and and there were there were uh, two or three of them that were solid, that were good, you know, that that were uh, pretty decent. And there were there were there were there were a bunch of those that were mediocre, and there were two or three of those that were absolutely horrible. I mean, just the worst leaders you could imagine. So, uh, it just just embarrassingly bad. The reality is, you don't get to you often don't you don't get to choose your leaders, and you have no ability to hire or fire them, right? So, uh, it, virtually no one has that. So, what you got to do is build the best relationship you can with any leader, whether that leader is amazing, whether that leader is terrible. And it's probably the biggest lesson that I learned from Jocko because I was one of those kind of, I was one of those guys just drinking the hater aid, you know, as we call it in the military of, you know, the chain of command doesn't know what's going on down here. And on the front lines, we're actually trying to get stuff done. You know, they're sitting up in their ivory tower, you know, and, and, and Jocko was, was a great mentor to me just to, to ask me questions like, Hey, does, does it do you any good to not have a good relationship with your chain of command? Like, does it do me, does it do me any good? Does it help me or does it help my team to have a bad relationship with my boss? You know, whether that's one or two levels or three levels up the chain of command, it, it doesn't do me any good. It actually hurts me. It hurts my team. It hurts our mission. It hurts our ability to actually have any kind of influence over what we're doing. It hurts our ability to get the resource that we actually need to be. Uh, and so when you start thinking about it like that, it, you realize like, okay, I need to have a good relationship with this ball. Whether this is somebody that I actually despise or somebody that is just, I think is kind of mediocre, somebody that's awesome. It doesn't matter. My, my goal as a leader is to try to have the same relationship with all of those people. Um, and, and that I want them to, I want them to, to, to trust me and, and respect my opinion. I want them to give me what I need to, to be su successful and get out of the way and let me do my job. That's, that's what I want to do with every single leader out there. And it's again, probably the biggest lesson I learned from Jocko because you know, I was, I was complaining about a lot of what the chain of command was, you know, they're scrutinizing us and they're asking us questions and we're being micromanaged and, and, you know, drinking that haterade, you know, about how terrible the chain of command is. And you know, I'd storm into Jocko's office and say things like, well, they don't know what's going on down here, you know? And he's like, you're right. They don't know what's going on. Cause by the way, they're, our, our uh, headquarters was in Fallujah. We were in Ramadi. There's about 30 miles between us. So they were, uh, it, Jock was like, yeah, they're actually not here with us right now. So, so how are they supposed to know what's going on? Well, well they read the reports. They read the reports that we send them, you know? I was like, well, they're reading the reports that we, you know, and, and so I'm like, so then he's asked me like, well, okay, do you think they're not reading the reports? Like, no, they're reading the reports. It's like, well, they're reading the reports, but they still have some questions about what we're doing and why we're doing it and how we're, you know, the steps that we're taking to mitigate some of the, the risks we're taking. Um, why is that? You know, it's like, well, I don't know. Like, they, and then the, 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 the question is, well, who writes the reports? And that was a big slap in the face to me, Ryan, because I wrote the reports. I wrote the reports. So here's my chain of command. By the way, they're not, they're, my chain of command is good people. They're asking me questions because they want me to be successful, not because they want to make my life miserable or prevent me from actually going out and, and conducting operations that they're going to help accomplish the mission. 
they're asking questions because they have some real questions and they got scrutiny on them as well. So the moment that I just put the haterade down and started thinking about, okay, okay, I need to lead up the chain. I need to actually push information their way. Let me see it from their perspective. They still have questions about how we're setting up our quick reaction force, right? These, that's the, the Marines or the soldiers that are going to come bail us out when we get, you know, in, in a bad situation. Um, so clearly I didn't do, do a good enough job of explaining that. And, and the, the moment that I started pushing that information to them and kind of seeing things from their perspective, I mean, the questions and scrutiny and all those frustrations that I was getting, I mean, all that stuff went to almost zero uh, as a result. So it's just a great example. I think of, you know, when you take ownership, instead of just blaming the boss or for, I got a toxic boss or my, and look, your, your boss may be an egomaniac. Your boss may be, all those things may be, may be true. Either it doesn't matter. You, you should try to form a good relationship with that boss. It, it, let's say the boss is egomaniac. The boss wants credit. We hear that from leaders all the time. You know what you should do? Give the boss credit. Hey, boss. It's, hey, boss. What do you what do you think about you know what do you think about maybe do, uh, this strategy here? Uh, okay. And the boss says I, I, that sounds good. Like I'll do it. That's awesome, boss. Great job. That's. I mean, this is people may look at that as brown nosing. We look at that as winning. That's what winning looks like. When now you're you're giving the boss credit, the boss is giving you more latitude to go execute. You have more influence on the organization to to go and be successful to lead your team. And if you're not doing those things, you're really failing the team. You're failing as a leader. Yeah, and I love this idea of like you know you in that example, like you ultimately instead of again like you said drinking the haterade, you started to take accountability, right? Like, okay, why are they asking so much questions and Jack was saying, well, who's writing that report? Oh, crap, I'm writing that report, right? So starting to take accountability for the, the role you played in them not feeling like they had enough information. And then again, having that ownership over the role that you played within that uh, situation. Um, and that really leads into um, the book that you co-wrote with Jocko, Extreme Ownership. It's, um, I think, the backbone of everything you talk about at Echelon Front. Uh, and I'd love for you just, um, you know, in the, in the most concise way possible to explain what extreme ownership is. I mean, I love the term when, when you guys came out with that book, um, you know, Dave had a copy right on his nightstand and that was, what year did that book come out? October, 2015. Okay. So October, 2015, that book came out. Dave had one of the first copies of that book and it's still sits on his nightstand. And it's one of those books that he has highlighted. He writes in the margins. Um, it's one of those books that he refers to when he's like, okay, wait, you know, and it's, and it's one of those books that he's reread multiple times because it's so applicable in every part of, of your life that you, you can apply this to. So tell us a little bit about why you wrote that book and what extreme ownership is. Yeah, we, we wrote, well, first of all, we wrote the book because of, there was a, there was a building demand signal. You know, we, we, we launched the company Echelon Front. Um, I, I did our first work with, with our very first client back in December of 2011. I think we officially became a, an LLC in, in early to, uh, 2012. Um, and, and, and right away we were creating some workbooks and some, some reference material that we could uh, hand to clients that we were working with, uh, groups of leaders. And they started, they, they said, Hey, can, can you give us more? Can you give us more when you guys are done with this, this workshop? We want to, we want to have something that we can actually fall back on and reference. So that started to become a pretty significant uh, thing that was, you know, uh, a couple hundred pages long. So um, by, by it's, you know, and then quickly realized, okay, we're going to actually have to, we need to publish this in a, in a book form. Um, and, and really what, what extreme ownership means is that there's nobody else to blame. There's no excuses you have to own everything in your world, not just what you're, what you're responsible for, but every single thing that impacts your mission. And, and this is something that it seems very simple. You know, it's, it's not a complex, you know, it's some, some crazy, you know, detailed theory learned in the classroom. This is a, this is a very sim simplistic thing, easy to understand, but it's extremely hard to implement in, in reality because the moment that, you know, you were, uh, you didn't realize you were supposed to pick the kids up from school today because you thought your spouse was handling it. It's so easy to just fall back on like, well, you didn't tell me that. Or I, you know, it just, you start pointing fingers, cast the blame on other people. Hey, the, the team, we, we missed our numbers, you know, or, or Hey, we failed to meet the timeline on this project. 
Um, and, and it's so easy to, well, the team didn't step up. The team didn't do anything to do instead of actually looking at yourself and say, okay, what could I have done to actually make sure that they, you know, that they, they met the time. Like what could I have done to actually improve the situation? And it, it's, again, it's, it's, it's simple, not easy is how we describe it. And it's, it's really the idea that it's not, you're not just saying, you're not just saying like, Hey, that was my fault. But, but you're actually going to implement a solution to fix that going forward as well. So, you know, if you truly understand like, hey, I, I didn't understand that I was supposed to pick the kids up from school. Next time, what I'm going to do is make sure that we talk about that, you know, before we leave the house in the morning so that I'm absolutely clear about, about who's going to pick the kids up. And then I've, I'm going to double check with you, uh, you know, prior, prior to that so we make sure that happened. Or, you know, with, with your team that didn't meet the timeline for a project. I'm going to make sure that we have the resource that we need. We're going to get this thing completed, uh, you know, two weeks before we actually, the projects do so that we have plenty of fudge factor time to, to make adjustments if we need to. I'm going to check in with everybody on my team and make sure that they're tracking. These are the things that I'm going to do to fix this problem going forward. Uh, and then you got to actually implement that solution. You actually have to execute on that to, to fix it. And, and if you're taking extreme ownership of problems, the problems get solved. It doesn't mean more problems aren't going to happen. I mean, we don't, we live in an imperfect world. There's, there's no, no, no such thing as flawless performance out there. Um, it, everyone's going to make mistakes, but, but as long as we learn from those mistakes, we, we, we can grow and we get better and we improve. Uh, and the organizations that, and people that take extreme ownership, they just run circles around everybody else because they, they, they're constantly getting better all the time. I had a, uh, someone on my staff that's a, a, a big fan of everything you guys do. Well, we all are, but, but um, a, a big fan of this idea of extreme ownership. And, and they asked me um, to ask you, is there ever a point where, and, you know, they lead us, they lead a team within our organization and, um, you know, they, they try to practice all of these lessons, um, but they, they wanted to know, is there ever a point where owning everything yourself becomes detrimental to the the progress of a team and the development of people you know it's one thing to say i'm going to own everything and if your team ultimately makes mistakes you're going to say listen that's on me because i didn't do x y and x y and z but it does it does it ever become detrimental to to the team when you're taking ownership for everything well you can i think i think a better way to phrase that question would be can you take too much ownership sure and the answer is absolutely absolutely you can you can take any of the things that we wrote about extreme ownership uh, too far in, in, in one direction or the other. Um, and, you know, cover move, for instance, right? This is about building relationships and mutually supporting one another. If, if I'm trying to build a good relationship with you by helping you, you know, do something you need to do, um, that's great. That's what I should be doing so that we can mutually support each other to accomplish our mission and win. But if I'm trying to, if, if I'm basically stepping on your toes and, 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 and I'm neglecting my own tasks to come and take on some of your tasks. And now you're feeling defensive and thinking, oh, Lay's trying to take over my job. I'm actually creating a worse relationship. So you could take any of these things too far, you know, in, in one direction or the other, and you certainly could take too much ownership. And, and what that looks like is that the team just sitting around and waiting for you to solve all the problems. Uh, and, and so what extreme ownership means you know, is, 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 is that you are responsible for everything. It doesn't mean you do everything. It doesn't mean, cause you can't do everything. That's why decentralized command is the fourth law of combat. And you, you actually have to empower your leaders uh, at every level of the team to actually step up and lead. And in order to do that, they have to understand the commander's intent, right? The purpose and the goal, the end state that you're trying to achieve. They have to understand the parameters where they can make decisions, where they can't make decisions. So it's a dichotomy you have to balance. And this is a struggle for people. It's, it's a great question. Um, that your teammate asked because it's a struggle for people. We wrote about it in uh, the 12th chapter of extreme ownership, the dichotomy of leadership, but we had to write an entire follow-on book about this because we saw so many leaders that were struggling with the idea that, you know, they were trying to cram extreme ownership down people's throats and beat them over the head with extreme ownership. You know, when someone's like, Hey, I, you know, we didn't have the resource we need. That's why we didn't uh, accomplish our mission. So, and, and someone's saying, well, those sound like excuses. You need to start taking ownership. Whereas really that's a, that's the opposite of taking, if I'm just going to blame that person, that's actually the opposite of extreme ownership, right? Cause I'm putting all the blame on them and telling them that they need to start taking extreme ownership because extreme ownership is about you. It's not about anybody else. So all of these things, you know, this is, this is you know, our follow-on book that came out in 2018 uh, is, was the dichotomy leadership about, you've got a balance between these two opposing forces that are pulling you in different directions. And both of those directions are right. You, you need to take extreme ownership of everything on your team. You need to actually empower the team with decentralized command, but you can go too far in, in, in those directions. You've got to, in both of those directions, and you have to find the balance between those two.
So I always wondered, yeah, and that, and that's, that's great. Um, that's great insight and leads me into, again, like you said, your second book, the dichotomy of leadership, you know, when you're writing, you guys saw the need, like the people were taking that idea of extreme ownership too far. You took a specific chapter within that and wrote the dichotomy of leadership and wrote another entire book on that. Where do you come up with these principles? Like this idea of extreme ownership, the dichotomy of leadership, like, is that based off of hands-on experience that you and Jocko had, or is it you guys just sitting down and talking about leadership philosophy as a whole? Um, you know, I'd love to know a little bit about the background uh, that brought you to that place where you were like, yes, this is the principle that we want to really drill down on. Absolutely. I mean, I, I think this is, uh, it's, it's a great question, Ryan. I, I don't, I'm not sure it's one I've been, been asked before. It's, it's uh, very interesting. Um, it, it's to, to reflect on that. I mean, what we teach now is what we taught in the SEAL teams. And when we came back from Ramadi, you know, in that we, we fought through the battle of Ramadi from April through October of 2006. Uh, we lost the first SEALs killed in the Iraq war. Um, it was incredibly humbling and difficult, you know, violent, uh, combat, violent urban combat operations on, on an almost daily basis. And, and so we learned a lot of humbling lessons learned. And, you know, if you'd ask young Lieutenant Babin, uh, if, for instance, if we were going to get in like a blue on blue or a friendly fire situation before we deployed, I'd be like, hell no, it doesn't, that happens to losers who don't know how to plan and execute. And it happened to us in the very first major operation right out of the gate. And so that kind of thing where we brought back this lesson of like, look, Combat is way harder than you think it's going to be. It's way more chaotic than you think it's going to be. It's so much easier to actually get in a blue and blue situation. And if you're not expecting that that can happen and not taking some significant steps to mitigate the risk of that, it's absolutely going to happen and it's going to be catastrophic. So those kind of things were lessons that we brought back. And, you know, Jocko wrote down those laws of combat and just distilled those things down um, as he was running training for, he took over training for the entire West Coast SEAL teams as the, the training detachment officer in charge. And so really every, every SEAL platoon and, and task unit or troop that was going through training uh, would, would, uh, would go through that training. And we really tried to focus on leadership, if tr challenging leaders to put them in situations where we could actually prepare them to make decisions, build relationships, you know, be humble, think through the, 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 the risks that they can mitigate, um, all the things that I wish someone had taught me. And, and so, you know, I learned these things from Jocko uh, and uh, we talked about them through the lens of, of, of our experiences from Ramadi. And, and really, as we started to put the, the, the idea for the book together, um, it was, it was a, it was a challenge to write that book. It was a, it was a real challenge to write that book. Um, one, the very first, I think, I think we originally called it the bruiser leader handbook. We were, our, 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 our task unit was task unit bruiser. And, uh, so we call it the bruiser leader handbook. And I put together like a proposal. I gave it to a, a literary agent and she was like, yeah, this is terrible. Uh, you guys, you guys can't write this thing. You need to, you need to get an, uh, you know, a ghostwriter, an author to write it for us. We finally found an agent that would represent us um, and started to put the book together and it eventually became, you know, extreme ownership. And, but we floated that thing out to five, the first five major publishers that we sent it to gave it the big thumbs down. You know, we're like, I don't think so. Some of them just said pass. Some of them said, Hey, we picked up another seal book. Some of them said, yeah, this is, you know, if, if you agree to work with an author uh, to write the book, we, we, you know, we might consider it, um, which we didn't want to do. We want to write it ourselves. Um, so, so we kind of had to jump through all those hurdles. And finally we found, uh, you know, we were connected with St. Martin's press and, uh, and, and the team there, uh, from McMillan that actually believed in the book and gave us a chance to, to, to write it. But even then, as we started, you know, e even then it was just kind of a, a table of contents and some ideas. We knew we wanted to talk about the laws of combat. We knew we wanted to talk about some, you know, some other things like, like belief, you know, and, and the importance of extreme ownership and, 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 and the, the economy of leadership and finding balance, all those things. But some of that really didn't come together until uh, until we actually really started digging into the manuscript and writing it. And, you know, one of the most interesting things about it is the the opening chapter about this horrible friendly fire blue on blue incident that happened right out of the gate uh, to us where an Iraqi soldier was killed. Several others were wounded. One of one of my guys was 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 wounded. And it is an absolute miracle that we didn't lose everybody in that sniper overwatch position. I'm talking six or eight SEALs killed. Um, we had we had tanks called in that were about to engage their position with with their main gun, you know, 100, 120 millimeter main guns that would have just obliterated the building. And we also had a a, a Marine uh, Air Naval Gunfire Liaison uh, Company uh, leader that was about to call in an airstrike. 
strike on the building as well. So thank God that, that, uh, uh, Jocko was actually in that position to be able to de-escalate that, um, you know, from, from a command and control perspective, uh, before it, it became worse than it was. And when I, we, the original opener for the book was the second chapter, no bad teams, only bad leaders, which is a story from, from buds as I was an instructor uh, and watching these, these boat crews that were racing and one boat crew is failing one boat crew is winning. And, and we swapped the leadership out. And all of a sudden the failing boat crew went to be the, the winning boat crew just simply by changing one person, the, uh, the, the leader, but that was the, that was the opening chapter. And, and I, I realized like, look, we need a, we need a good combat story here that really illustrates this. And I, I can't, I can't think of a better example. Um, you know, as Jaco and I were talking, I was like, I can't think of a better example than when you stood up in front of the, the team. I saw, I was in the room as Jocko stood up in front of the entire task unit, in front of our commanding officer, in front of the investigating officer, um, and 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 said, Hey, listen, this is my fault that this 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 blue on blue uh, friendly fire incident happened. This is my fault. And even though he hadn't been in the position when it happened at the time. And so it was a very powerful thing for, for me and the rest of the task unit to witness. Um, and so I was like, look, I think we should write that, you know, this, this should be the opening chapter. And Jocko was like, oh, I don't, I don't think so. I don't think we can write that. It, Cause it was, it was some of those hard, it was a big black eye for us yeah. and it was hard to write about. And it was difficult. Um, it was, it was a terrible thing that happened and it was going to take some, some detailed explanation, you know, for that. But after some conversations, you know, it, it, a couple of weeks of that, um, you know, Jocko was like, you're right. We need to write it. And so we, we wrote that chapter. I don't think the book would be the same, you know, if, if it didn't open with this horrible situation that happened uh, where Jocko actually just, you know, he, he, he stood up in front of the room and said, Hey, who's, who, whose fault was this? And various guys are raising their hand and saying, Hey, that was my fault. I shouldn't have let this happen. Or, Hey, this is my fault. It was with the Iraqi soldiers that were out of sector. Hey, this is my fault. We were in the sniper overwatch position and it was just getting light and we didn't properly identify our, our, our targets because we couldn't see with night vision, but the, the sun wasn't you know bright enough to see, you know, with, with daylight yet. Um, and, and Jocko went around the room and was like, it's not your fault. It's not your fault. This is my fault. I'm the commander of this, this unit. Everything that happens is my fault. We're going to make sure that nothing like this ever happens again. And our respect for him just blew through the roof uh, when he did that. And, and, and even you know, our commanding officer and those uh, and, and the investigating officer that, that was there, um, their trust in him actually went up even after a horrible incident happened because he actually took ownership and we actually did it. Every level of the team, we implemented solutions uh, to make sure that didn't happen again. So, that's, that's, you know, just, just some insight into kind of how, how the book came together, um, you know, in, in that regard. And, and, you know, frankly, I think some of those powerful chapters are always the hardest to write. Um, and I'm sure you experienced that with the knock at the door, you know, as you were talking about you, you and Amy and, you know, are, are talking about the most difficult days of, of your, of your lives. Um, it's such a horrible, tragic situation. Uh, you're being notified that you lost your brother, you lost your husband, you know, this, this is, this is such a terrible situation. Um, and, and yet I think those, those chapters become powerful as you're, you know, you're, you're, you're having to channel some emotion and really think deeply about, you know, what you did to get through those, those challenges uh, in order to be successful. Yeah. We had a lot of those moments. Uh, Amy, Heather, and I wrote that book. We actually, uh, went out to La Jolla and, um, we spent a week out there, um, putting the contents together, putting like the, the, the blueprint of the stories we wanted to ultimately share. And each one of us had moments where we were, we were sharing with each other different stories and different times throughout um, our, our journeys. And all three of us at different times were like, oh yeah, we, we would like tell the story and then say, yeah, but we're not, I'm not going to put that in the book. And every single one of those stories were the stories that were the most powerful that ended up in that book. Because it, we were in such a vulnerable place and it was one thing to just say it in the room with the three of us and really talk through it. But then to think about, you know, thousands of people are going to read this. Um, we started to get like, well, and, and I'll never forget. It was actually our literary agent said, because there was one, there was one story that Amy did, did not want shared. And I pushed at her and I said, Amy, this is like really showing the, the place that you were in, in a way that, you know, no one would ever be able to comprehend if this story wasn't in here. And she was very uncomfortable about it. And the literary agent said, you know, I, I went to the literary agent. I said, listen, we're, we're kind of going back and forth on this. Amy's uncomfortable. I'm telling her she should put it in. And he said, you know, if you guys want this book to be successful, you have to be vulnerable. You have to be willing to tell those stories. And, um, and we ultimately did. 
And, uh, but yeah, it's, it's, it's a process with knowing like kind of these deepest, darkest times in your life and, and are, are being put out there, but that's how you have the ability to help others learn and grow too, because they're all going to go through different challenging situations. You know, it may, like I always say, it may not be the blue on blue uh, situation. It may not be a knock at the door where you're finding out that your loved one was, was killed overseas, but like, we're all going to have these experiences and for people to put out like how they grew from experiences that, you know, were similar to theirs. Like that's how people grow. So I appreciate you guys doing that. And obviously, you know, the, the book is a New York times bestseller. It's uh, you know, it's, it's still out there as one of the foremost books on leadership and, and, uh, that, that exists. And anyone who's like, you know, ask me like, what's, what's the greatest book on leadership, extreme ownership, like pick it up, read it, digest it and, you know, own it, live by it. Um, well, that means a lot, Ryan. I, thank you for saying that. I mean, look, our, us writing that is just, that doesn't even compare, right? So I know the difficulty that must, must've been for you and for Amy, for Heather, you know, writing uh, a knock at the door. And, uh, but, but I, I think you, what you just said is, is, is so powerful. And, I think that's ultimately what why Jocko realized like, hey, yeah, we're putting ourselves on report for something really bad that happened, um, but we're sharing these lessons so that maybe it, it won't happen to others, right? They can they can learn the lessons from this, and um, and it's it's been powerful, you know, it's it's been, it's been a really powerful thing to see how people have taken it and implemented that, and you know, that's one of the things that I love most about the Travis Manning Foundation is you know you you have taken you know the 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 horrific tragedy that your family's been through and experienced and turned that into such a positive for the world to uh, to, to to go out and actually share the message and and uh, uh and inspire people and 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 so many people are are you know deciding to wear the uniform or step up in their community or you know honor those that have served and 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 make a difference just based on that that impact and i think it's been a it's been a a real inspiration to people. Uh, and, and I think that's, that's something that's you, you guys have you and your dad and, and your mom, have, you know, it's just absolutely set the example in that, uh, and your, your team, uh, TMF. It's, it's awesome. Awesome to see. I appreciate that. Lee. Um, one of the things I wanted to touch on, you know, we're a couple of days away from the 21st anniversary of September 11th. And, you know, you talked about, you graduated from the Academy in 98 and I, I think about, you know, Travis graduated in 2004, um, but when he entered into the Naval Academy, it was, it was pre 9-11, and while he was there, the world changed. You graduate from the Academy, and you had to think at your time at the Naval Academy, your, your post-military service, which you knew you were ultimately going to do, uh, was going to look very different than what it became. Can you talk to us a little bit about just kind of the shift that you had to take, the mindset shift, um, and where you were uh, in the military uh, pre 9-11 and what happened, you know, post 9-11 and what, you know, what effect that had on you? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. There's no question that, you know, 9-11 certainly changed, changed the world. And I think for those of us that were serving at the time, you know, all of a sudden, you know, with the, the panic and fear and uncertainty across, you know, the uh, the entire populace, you know, in America, I mean, for those that were in the military, it was, it was absolute certainty. I mean, you, you now know that you're going to war and this is real and, and we're going to go overseas and fight our nation's enemies. And, you know, when I, when I graduated in 98, there was, um, there, there was, it wasn't too long after. So, so I did not get selected for the SEAL program. I, this is, I, I, I got an appointment to West Point. Um, there was a huge West Point uh, alumni network in Southeast Texas where, where I grew up. Uh, and they were, uh, they were extremely upset with me for uh, turning down that appointment and, and going to the Naval Academy. I did that because I wanted to be in the SEAL teams. And that's what I wanted to do. I think their, their big, their push for me was that they said Eisenhower went to West Point, Carter went to Naval Academy. Which one do you want to be? I was like, man, that's a rough, <laughs> rough comparison there. But, uh, but I went, I went to Navy because I wanted to be in the SEAL teams. I didn't get picked up and there, there was, uh, uh, it's actually one of the best things that ever happened to me at the time. It was absolutely soul crushing. There were, there were 16 billets. Uh, I think they have, you know, a little more now, but, uh, we had a prior enlisted seal. So we only 15 guys were getting selected. 
uh, to go. And I, I wasn't one of those. And I didn't have great grades. I had I had a terrible conduct record. I got a bunch of trouble. Uh, and, you know, I wasn't a varsity athlete. There was a lot of things that, you know, I, I was competing against these incredible athletes that that crushed me on the, you know, the physical screening tests for the most part. So um, I really had to take extreme ownership of that situation and think about, okay, if this is what I want to do, I'm going to have to work extra hard to actually uh, to, to, to make this happen and open these doors up. But I, I so I went to uh, I became a surface warfare officer and I went to uh, the surface warfare officer school up in Newport, Rhode Island. And uh, we were coming in to, to work one day, um, you know, driving on the base in Newport. And uh, all of a sudden it was like a gigantic traffic uh, jam. And it was the the embassy bombings in Kenya and, and uh, uh, Tanzania that had just happened. And so that was kind of a wake up call of like, hey, this there's an organization out there that wants to kill Americans. Um, you know, and, and, and that was kind of a, you can see this kind of, kind of building now, you know, in retrospect, and I think a lot of America was just kind of a, asleep to that. Oh, that's Africa. Uh, but those were pretty horrific, uh, attacks. If you dig into them and the number of people that were just horribly wounded, the glass that blinded people. And, uh, we're talking hundreds of people, you know, so, uh, it, it was, uh, it was pretty significant. Um, but that was, that was a wake up call. Still, I'm, I'm in the service fleet. There's not a lot I can really impact on that. Um, and then my, my first deployment, we actually were headed back from, uh, the, the, I flew out to my ship and met, met them in, in Bahrain. Uh, I was on a destroyer, USS Oldendorf. And we were, we were coming back across the, um, uh, we were coming back across the, uh, um, actually I guess it was my second deployment. So we did my second deployment that we went out uh, on the Oldendorf. We were coming back from that and the USS coal bombing happened in, in Yemen. So we were, we were out in the, the Indian ocean at the time we turned around and went back, uh, and, and to, to steam off the coast and, 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 uh, to try to support in that effort. And so, you know, at the time it was, it was incredibly frustrating to me because I'm thinking that we have Americans that are being attacked and killed and we're really not doing a lot about it. Like what, what are we actually doing about it? When we sent some tomahawks into, you know, Afghanistan, um, I mean, all that did was, you know, I mean, you know, we blew up some tents, right? I mean, there may have been a handful of people killed. It certainly was not a significant response, uh, to, to, to that escalation, and, um, and so, you know, when nine 11 happened, I was, I was on my second ship and, uh, I just gotten picked up for the seal program. So I, I had not, I, I would be starting buds at some point, you know, four or five, six months down the road. Um, but I was, I was sitting there, uh, we were portside in San Diego, uh, and, and a guy called me on the way into work and said, Hey, turn on the TV. Um, and, uh, so we, we turn on the TV and, you know, just in time to see the second plane hit the towers and we realized, man, this, this, this thing is real. Like we've been attacked. This is a, this is a major, uh, a major attack on America. And it was, you know, the world obviously forever changed. And I'm sure everybody remembers where they were, you know, who was, who was alive on that day and, and won't, won't ever forget it. Uh, but for us in the service fleet, it was still kind of, we're kind of just, Kind of like, how do we support this, you know, this, this effort? Um, I deployed to the, the, the Western Pacific, you know, after that, there wasn't, it still was just kind of training and preparation. And there wasn't a lot that we were going to do in Afghanistan and in the service fleet. So when I started BUDS uh, the following spring, it, it was, you know, it, it was real. We knew this was, this is a, a reality uh, and we're going to go to war and, and fight our nation's enemies. And, and, uh, and so, um, you know, I think that's something that we just kept in mind of. It's a lot bigger than us. Um, and, and something I'm, I'm proud to be a, you know, a donor to the uh, 9-11 uh, memorial um, in, in in New York. I think it's something that what I, I love the 9-11 heroes runs, right, to, that, that you guys do to honor people across the country, because I think it's so easy for our country to forget, uh, forget that. And I was just reading a book uh, about uh, it, it's it's called By Water Beneath the Walls about the history of the SEAL teams. Some kind of fascinating insight into the Marine Corps uh, it, as well. Uh, but it's about the history of the, the SEAL teams and where they came from uh, by, by an author named Ben Milgan, who's a SEAL teammate of mine and, and, and a friend. And it, it's, it's interesting because he's talking about, and we had this, this, this immediately, I mean, the, from the moment uh, the underwater demolition teams and the scouts and raiders were being trained uh, at, a, at a place called Fort Pierce, Florida, and they started tearing the bases down. I mean, like the, the day of the Japanese surrender. They're like tear the bases down. They literally had the guys in the middle of a training episode, uh, training training evolution. They go back to the camp and they start tearing the camp down. And 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 it, within just a matter of days, there's nothing left of the camp but just the swimming pool. Uh, nothing's visible. And and yet then you know the net very next chapter that he's talking about is the Korean War. And uh, and so it, it's it's fascinating to think that 
you know, you had Omar Bradley testifying before Congress saying that there's never going to be another amphibious invasion like Normandy or, you know, the, the North, North uh, Africa invasions ever again. Uh, he's literally saying this in like 1946. And then all of a sudden it happens in Korea just a, just like five years later. So th this is, uh, it, it's, you know, we always have to be ready, right? We always have to be prepared. And I think there's, uh, it, and it doesn't take long, I think, to lose, lose that edge. And so, you know, for us in the military, um, you know, at the time, I'm, I'm proud of our service, you know, in 9-11 and, and our service in, in Iraq. And I never got to serve in Afghanistan, but I supported guys there and, and uh, certainly know a lot of people that did. Um, and, and I think that that uh, it's only a matter of time, right, before those enemies resurface, before they reconstitute, before they attack us again. And it, it's very easy, I think, to take all that stuff for granted. Uh, and you see this cycle of history repeating itself. And and you know, if you think about the U.S. military just being just being pushed back, you know, uh, in, in Korea, uh, where it's it's just it, it's an embarrassing uh, moment where we're just getting overrun by the North Koreans and almost pushed completely off the peninsula. Uh, you know, just a, ha a handful of years after the end of World War II, and we have the greatest military in the world um, because we lost that. So, you know, I, I think for me, you know, the lesson 9-11 is like that stuff can happen again at any moment, and we always have to be vigilant. We always have to be prepared. Uh, and, and if you get this idea thinking that, like, hey, the, the wars are over, um, you know, I, I remember when President Obama made the, the, the speech, the tide of war is receding, and he made that statement, and he, he repeated that line a few times in different speeches. Uh, and I just remember thinking like, hey, that's not up to us. You know, it's totally not up to us that the tide of war recedes. Um, and we can see that today, right, in, in places like uh, uh, Ukraine. So, uh, or, or some of the, the escalations going on around uh, Taiwan. So uh, I think, uh, you know, how, how did 9-11 change for, for me? It was just the reality set in of like, this is real and we better be prepared to go and fight our nation's enemies. And, and what's at stake if we don't go and do this job? Um, and so, you know, I think there's, uh, the good news is there's there's always I think a great generation of people um, that are going to step up and uh, and 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 serve their country and and are willing to go and sacrifice um, you know to 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 make sure that uh, that that evil is is contained in the world and that we the rest of us can live live free and prosperous lives. Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more. And I you know I think about so we've been doing these 9/11 heroes runs for 15 years now. Um, we you know our first race was. Uh, the year after Travis was killed and it was my uncle and my uncle used to run. My uncle was a, a college wrestler. Just, he was Travis's training partner and, and they always used to do runs together. And he said, you know, as, as we're getting the Travis Manning foundation going, he's like, let, listen, let's do a 5k race. Like that's a great way to, you know, raise money. It's a great way to bring people together. And it was coming up on September 11th. And he said, uh, let's, let's call it the 9-11 heroes run, you know, not just about Travis, but about signifying what September 11th meant, honoring all of those men and women, our first responders as well. And, and we all were like, yes, that's it. And, and I think about, you know, the, the first few years of that race, we were competing with so many other different 9-11 events, memorials, uh, ceremonies, and, over the years, and I would say in the past past five years, especially, like a lot of that has gone away. And it makes me sad to see that our collective conscious can like walk away from such a significant event in our nation's history so easily. Um, and here we are, 21 years later, we are not a nation at war. And, um, and we're 21 years out from September 11th. And so I, I've, I've said to my team multiple times, like, we, it is even more important that we succeed with what we're doing here with the 9-11 Heroes Run, not for a fundraiser, because trust me, I always say people talk to me about uh, 5K races. And I said, if, if you think that executing 90 5K races across the country in the month of September is a good way to raise money, you're crazy. It is a logistical nightmare. Uh, imagine putting on this amount of events, like 60,000 people coming out. For us, it's more like, hey, we want to make sure that we are giving every American an opportunity to remember 9-11. Um, and I get nervous when I think about, uh, I, I was on the radio this morning talking about our, our race series coming up, and we were talking about, you know, how our country responded after September 11th and that collective unity that if you were old enough, you know, to remember 9-11, you felt it you felt that sense of unity and, you know, 
it's hard to even try to imagine a time post 9-11 that we felt that way as a country. And that's a scary thing. You know, that's a, that's a scary thing to look at where we are today as a nation and see how far we've come from that that place of unity that we all were and that, that it took something like that to bring us together. And so, you know, that's just a small, I say we're, we're, we're the, the tiniest little microcosm of a piece, but we want to play that role to say like, if, if you're like us and you want to talk about unity, you want to talk about coming together, you want to talk about honoring the men and women that serve and protect us every day, like we're going to give you an opportunity to do that. So that's uh that's what the, the the runs are all about for us, just bringing people out there for that perspective. And I, I think it's such an awesome thing because you, you just can't, you can't do that enough. You know, you really can't, as you said, like it's, it's, it's gone away. Uh, and, and I think we have to remind people that, uh, uh, you know, the, 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 the only thing that stands between us and, and, and evil people that would destroy, um, you know, our, 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 our innocent lives here in America is, 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 people in uniform that are, that are, you know, willing to carry weapons and protect them and, and, uh, and put their lives on the line. So uh, I think it's an awesome thing. And I love what you guys do. And I think the, you know, the character does matter program and, and just, just building, you know, building this, honoring uh, people that have, have sacrificed and talking about what service means. Um, I mean, I, to me, it, it's, it's, there's nobody out there that that's, that's doing it like, like you guys do at, 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 at uh, TMF. And it's just, it's an awesome, awesome thing to even be a small part of. We're uh but certainly uh, super proud of you, Ryan, and the organization that you lead and run. Oh, I appreciate that. And I think about, you know, when I think about our character program, it's almost a, it's, it's, it's the junior version of Echelon Front. You know, we've got these veterans that are going out and, and developing character education to our next generation, teaching them their lessons from the battlefield. I mean, they're not talking about the gruesome combat situations, but they're talking to them about these like principles that they've learned in the military and how these young kids can apply them in their own backyards, in their own communities. Um, so I, I love the synergies between what we do. It's awesome. All right, I've got two quick fire, uh, two quick fire questions for you. Um, other than your books, what book would you recommend to people on leadership that has had the most impact on you? Probably the same book that Jocko said, which is uh, about face David Hackworth. Okay. That is, uh, that's something that, uh, probably had the most impact on me as uh, he that's Jocko's not a gift giver, but he gave me that book when we were working together. Uh, it's a daunting book for people. It's like 800 pages and, you know, Hackworth kind of went a little off the deep end toward the end, end of his days there. Um, and, uh, uh, but, but he was an incredible leader and, uh, and, and Mr. Infantry started, started as a 17 year old private worked his way all the way up to Colonel and, and battalion command um, it, through, through Korea and Vietnam. And uh, I think he was the highest decorated uh, living soldier at the time when he died uh, back about 20 years ago. So um, just uh, that's a fantastic book. Uh, I would definitely recommend reading that. Awesome. And then, you know, when we, we talk about this podcast is called The Resilient Life, we talk about putting one foot in front of the other, uh, overcoming challenges, um, getting to where you need to be, but, but always recognizing that life's going to throw curveballs at you. Um, none of us are, are void from that. Uh, we will all have to, to deal with different challenges throughout our life. Uh, what does living a resilient life look like for you? Living a resilient life for me is is about knowing that you're going to make mistakes and you're going to stumble. And I think that that in my mind, this is the power of extreme ownership because it's 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 humbling to know that that it's it's your fault, right? There's there's always something you could have done to, to do better, but it's also liberating to know that everybody makes mistakes. Uh, and, and so rather than just carry the weight and burden of like, oh, I didn't do what I should have done there, or oh, I could have done better here. Uh, to realize like, okay, let me learn some lessons from that and take this going forward. Um, uh, take those lessons, implement them going forward and share those lessons with other people. Uh, and I think that's something that has helped me, um, you know, be resilient through, through challenging times. Um, and, and that's, I think, the power of extreme ownership. Awesome. Leif, thank you so much. It's always great to talk to you. Always great to hear your insight. And um, thanks for, you know, listen, people pay a lot of money to hear uh, Leif Babin's leadership uh, leadership philosophies. Uh, and you're getting it right here for free, an hour and 15 minutes of all things leadership. Always awesome to have your insight uh, and hear from you, Leif. And thank you so much for joining us on the Resilient Life podcast. Great to be on with you, Brian. Thanks for having me.
Thanks so much for listening today. Please make sure to like, subscribe, and share with your friends.